This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gazan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet And every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants and prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, that they should not do like them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's really a tragic passage. In fact, uh, all of Second Kings essentially is a tragedy. It's a flow telling the story of God's people who he brought out of Egypt and how they increasingly go after other gods, gods besides him. And it culminates in this chapter, chapter 17, where God essentially, we'll see in grace, judges his people. He removes Israel from the land that he had put them in. He takes them away into exile. And he tells them why. He says, I am removing you because you have forsaken me and you have followed other gods. And this passage reveals the fundamental issue in all of the Bible when it comes to us and God. And that is idolatry. Did you know that? Did you know that idolatry is the fundamental issue that the, both this, test, this, text, this text and the entire Bible, I'm so excited I'm getting ahead of myself here, not only this text, but the entire Bible speaks to this reality. And it's this, that we are prone to making good things into ultimate things. That we are prone for our heart's trust, our heart's hope, 
our heart's comfort and help. We are prone to go find it in things. Sometimes even things that we make, like money and houses and things that we buy like cars and things that we are given to steward like our family and children. We look to these things that will let us down every time as though they can give us joy. Some of you have been around long enough and you understand the theme of idolatry enough to even explain your unique proclivity towards these types of things. You may say, listen, I am very prone to idols of comfort. Anything that gives me comfort or power or approval or security. It could be anything. It could be career, family, spouse, achievement, success, political cause, physical attractiveness, romance, fame, power, financial security. It could be any of these things. And what's so clear in the Bible is that idolatry is mainly a heart issue. It's mainly an issue of worship. One commentator helpfully said this. He said, idolatry is the summary word in the Old Testament that describes the the draw away from God. The, The Old Testament just calls that idolatry. Any drifting from God, the Old Testament calls idolatry. The New Testament picks up on that and it summarizes it summarizes the drift away from God in the word desire or the Greek word epithumia, a misordered desire or a desire that is perverted. And both of them are describing shorthand the problem of humanity. So it's clear idolatry is fundamentally at play in our hearts. And recently, as I was reading through CBR, I came through to 2 Kings 17 And in a way that I personally had never seen my own idolatry, there was a phrase in 2 Kings that we will get to that arrested my mind and my heart. And I couldn't let it go. It just kept reverberating in my mind. And so when I found out that I got to preach in between sermon series and I got to have a standalone message, I said, oh yes, that's what I'm preaching on, 2 Kings 17. And I know as soon as you guys saw the text, many of you said, this is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. It might be after this, not because of me, but because of the amazing truth that is spoken and hidden right in the middle of this chapter. So we're going to see three things about idols from this chapter. But first, let me define it. It'd be good straight away to define it, wouldn't it? So you know what I'm talking about, so you can understand. And for sake of today, I'm describing an idol as something or someone besides Jesus that has captured your heart's ultimate trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. And we're going to see that happen in three ways. But first, we're going to see it in the draw of idols. Now listen, the Bible is clear that ultimately you and I are responsible for our own worship. You and I are responsible for what we choose to worship. We're responsible for what we choose to trust in and hope in and ultimately love. But at the same time, there are things at work. And theologically throughout years, it's been summarized as three main things. Uh, The world, the flesh, and the devil. First of all, the flesh. By flesh, I mean this. There is a reality in your life that is currently not submitting to the Lordship of Christ. We just were preached to and from and out of Galatians, and we learned this, that our flesh has been crucified. Yet, 
it is still dying a slow death. And in that dying, in that slow dying, there is a drift. There, is, there are desires in us that long for things that we should not desire. And the Bible oftentimes calls this our flesh. There's also the devil or the demonic. Now, the Bible is far from comprehensive on this subject. I mean, it doesn't tell us everything, but it is definitely clear that it is real. It is definitely clear that there is a battle going on that's external to us that we cannot see, that is not flesh and blood, and that this reality is at work in your private life, in your marriage, in your daydreaming. There are attacks on you to woo you away, to deceive you, to call you to things that will not bring life, but will actually bring death. That is a reality and you cannot see it, but you must be aware of it. And then the other thing besides the flesh and the devil or the demonic is the world. Now, although it's hard to separate these things out completely because they're so interrelated, uh, in this text, the world comes front and center. The draw of idolatry comes mostly from the world in this text. That's front and center. So this third reality, we see it in verse seven in the text. In verse seven, it says, they feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. We see it in 15b as well. It says, they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. It's interesting language. Follow. Go after. Fear. We see in 1 John that what's described as the nations in this text, the world is an organized system that's external to us that is against God. It's against his order. It rebels against him and it seeks to hook us and draw us away from the Lord. It seeks to make things which ought not be desirous to us, desirous. And we experience that in various ways, maybe commercials. I'm reminded of a brilliant, honestly, if I'm honest, uh, ad campaign by BMW a few years ago, and it was called the Joy Campaign. And there were two or three uh, sequential advertisements, and they were kind of long. I mean, they took up a lot of space, at least a minute long. And it shows all these beautiful pictures of wondrous places around the world, and there's this great voiceover, and everyone's happy and beautiful. And it talks about the longing in the human heart and our desire for beauty. And then at the end, the gospel presentation of BMW. And for a second, I thought, oh yeah, that's exactly what I need. And then I realized, I don't have that kind of money. So that's not my gospel. I guess I got to find another gospel. But it was brilliant. So we see it in commercials. We see it on billboards, advertising to us. We see it in shopping malls. And in 2 Kings, it was all around them. It was all around them, described as the nations. So what's so terrible, what is so tragic about this is that the world, this system is based off of one assumption that's actually true. And that is every human being is a worshiper. Every one of us will worship something. And so based on that reality, the world is set up in such a way used by the flesh, used by, our dev- used by the devil, 
to draw us away to misordered desires so that we really believe, truly believe in that moment that we will, will, can, and only find meaning, comfort, acceptance, approval in things other than God. And it's happening all the time, everywhere around us. You see, the language that I mentioned walk in the customs, follow. Is this familiar? This is discipleship language. This is discipleship language. This is language that says, come after me, follow me. They went after the other nations. They followed the other nations. This is a call to a life. This is actually a call to imitation. See, our enemy, the world, it's not set up merely to distract you. It's set up to win you and to woo you and to make you feel loved and to gain your trust, which of course is why it's so tragic. Because every trust besides the Lord, the Bible is very clear about this, by the way, every trust will let us down. It will let you down. It will fail you. And the amazing thing about worshipers is that if our God fails us, if the BMW fails us, if my promotion fails me, if the, if the letters behind my name let me down, I have two options. I either turn and follow the true God or I find another God and then another one and then another one and then another one. And you see, that brings us to our second point, which is this. Not only is there a draw of idols, There is the destruction of idols. Idols will destroy you. They promise life, but they will destroy you. They'll destroy you in a few ways. The first way is this. If you are a disciple of the world, if you are following the world, you will become utterly self-centered and therefore useless. I find this in verses 9 through 11. If you look in your bulletin, you can glance down there with me. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places. Verse 10. They set up for themselves pillars. Themselves. When you're a disciple of the world, it it becomes about you. It becomes about filling up. You can never give away. You can never give life. You can never love. You can never serve because you're trying desperately to be loved, to be served, to find meaning. And what's so interesting about this as well is that there's a certain inertia to this. You see, once you begin to turn inward, a desire is born for more and it's not satisfied. And so then you turn more inward and it's still not satisfied. I find this in the same verses 9 through 11. If you look down, it says this in 9b. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. And before that, it says they first did secretly against the Lord. So you see what happened is it started secretly in far off regions, way away from the city, in remote areas. They would build these these places of worship. And then eventually they went from watchtower way out there to the very center city, to the fortified cities, unafraid, unashamed, building idols and towers. 
for themselves. And then eventually everywhere in between. The inertia of self-centered worship is a continued turning on yourself. So to be a disciple of the world is to become unrecognizable as God's people. It's to become utterly self-centered. I mixed those around. Sorry about that. You're probably confused on what was happening. We got this new cool thing where I get to control it, and I'm not sure that was a good idea, actually. (laughs) So this is what we talked about. We actually just talked about B, self-centeredness. But I do want to go back to verse 8. I'm just going to flip the order. So to be a disciple of the world is to become unrecognizable as God's people. And we see this in verse 8 where it says, The Lord who had brought his people into the land to display him left him. So the Lord brought them into the land so that they could be a light to the nations. But in fact, what happened is that they followed the nations. Look at this in verse 8. The Lord had brought them out of the land, but they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. You see, the Lord had drove out the people before them so that he could fill the land with his people to be a light. But in whoring after other gods, they became unrecognizable as his people and they actually became just like the other nations. So to be a disciple of the world... To follow after the things of the nations is first to become unrecognizable as God's people. Then it's to be a disciple of the world is to become utterly self-centered. And then we see to be a disciple of the world is to reject God's redemptive love. You see this in verse 15. Look down in verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers. They despise his covenant. This is marriage language. Okay? One of the main images in the Bible of idolatry is actually adultery. It's this picture of God who has entered into relationship with his people. He's entered into relationship with them. He's called them to himself as his bride. And then they leave him. And they commit adultery over and over and over And so to follow the world is actually to reject God's love for you and for me. So it's to become unrecognizable as God's people. It's to become utterly self-centered. It's to reject God's redemptive love. And here is the culmination in verse 15b. They went after false idols and became false. This is the verse that arrested me, actually. What does it mean to become false? What does that mean? It means this. Idols don't merely hurt you. They change you. Idols distort the image of God in us. And if we worship that which is not God, we will reduce the image of God in us. You see, you and I were not only created to worship, we were created to be image bearers. And if we do not image God, we will image something. And so to become false 
means what Psalm 115.8 says. Because according to the Bible, we become like what we worship. Listen to this. Psalm 115.8 says, we read it earlier. Whatever you trust in, you become like it. Think about that. So if you find your value in physical attractiveness, you will become vain and self-centered. If you find your identity in success and power, you will become greedy, oppressive, and materialistic. If you find your value in academic success, you will become proud, arrogant, condescending, and conceited. If you find your worth in human approval, you will become fearful, manipulative, untruthful, and therefore false. You know, even through the latest of neuroscience, we find that those who, of us who would run to pornography for love, acceptance, pleasure, it actually rewires our brain. That's crazy. It rewires our brain in such a way that we actually begin to view the opposite sex differently. We actually can't help but objectify other human beings when we look at them. And something physically happens in your brain. Now, it's not just neuroscience that tells us this. Literature throughout history has always told us this. I mean, even a very familiar example would be the Christmas carol, right? Think of Scrooge. We see Scrooge who puts sacrifice, or he sacrifices his entire life, his future wife, his business partners for what? For security, for financial security, for financial gain. But the only problem is, is that he becomes empty, lost, angry, terrified, and subhuman. And therefore he becomes false. Isn't that the whole message? Is that we become like what we worship. We actually are affected and changed by what we worship. You know, as I've reflected on this passage uh, and these truths, I've realized at a deeper level, just how my thought life and my aspirations are not God-centered. They really draw me away from God. As I was reflecting this week, even thinking about sharing uh, today, I thought about the reality that my heart really longs for prestige and it really longs for respect. And I'm very, very prone to finding my identity in those things. And so what that does to me is it makes me afraid. It makes me fearful and therefore selfish and joyless. And it makes me disbelieve God. You see, that's what the text says, is that they no longer believed the Lord, but feared other gods. You know, and as I reflect on that and I think about what to do about that, I, I can admit to you that in my own experience and the Bible tells me that an idol will always, always, always disappoint me. It'll always let me down. It will always fail me. It's not meant 
to uphold my identity, to infuse meaning into my life. But why do I keep going back to it? Why do you keep going back to it? You see, the good news is, is that in admitting that, I realize that there is actually not only a draw to idols, a destruction that comes from idols, but there's a deliverer of idols. And here's the really good news. It's not my own effort. It's not me. We see it in the text, actually. The text looks grim, but it's not. There's actually hope here. Look in verse 7b. It says that the Lord brought them up out of the land of Egypt. In verse 13, it says, while they were building pillars of false worship on every hill and under every tree, the Lord was warning them by every prophet and every seer. Do you see that? So the picture, the reality was this. They kept setting up more and more gods on every hill, on every tree, whoring on every hill and every tree. And God continued to pursue them. It says with every prophet and with every seer, he warned them. He called them back to him. Now here in 2 Kings, they don't turn. But this isn't the end of the story. You see, this judgment on Israel was only a small J, a lowercase j judgment. And it was actually a gracious judgment. You see, without this judgment, you and I would not be here now. Because generations later, the real, actual, capital J judgment happened. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Jesus took the ultimate judgment. So the good news, the amazing news, is that following Jesus is not about doing better or changing. It's actually about transformation. And we just learned in Galatians, by the way, that that transformation doesn't come by you. It doesn't come by the flesh. It comes from the Spirit The Spirit initiates God's love in your heart. The Spirit comes to you through the preaching of the Word, and your heart is strangely warmed. And all of a sudden, 2 Corinthians tells us that there's this veil that's been removed from our eyes. So the Spirit comes uninitiated by us, removes this veil, and we see the Lord. We see Him. And in the same way that following after idols, we become false when we see the Lord and respond to his call and by his power imitate his life, we become like him. So you see, the deliverer from idols is a delivery from slavery to idols, but it's also an empowered life. We're given a spirit, the spirit of the Lord. The spirit that transforms us. The spirit that changes us. The spirit that adopts us and unites us to Christ. And now, because of that 
capital J judgment on our behalf, the judgment that we deserved. We now, when we face idols, when we realize our heart is drawn away, we understand that we can look to Christ. And as we look to him, the text says, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. That is our hope. That is our only deliverer from idols. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we're so thankful that you don't call us to moralism. You don't call us to following the rules, but you call us to a life. You call us to a life of following. You call us to a life of imitation. And all of this is made possible because you have died for us. Father, your judgment was poured out on Jesus. We thank you for that. And we ask now that as we would be convicted as our hearts would be drawn towards other things because of the world, the flesh, and the devil, that we would turn to Jesus now that we have an unveiled face and we would behold him and we would become like him. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.